Please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3, um, and we're going to be continuing our, our series on 20 chapters of redemptive history. So uh, we, we began this right after our 20-year anniversary, and we're just looking at, uh, you know, we can't do it all, but we thought, let's pick 20 key chapters, milestones on the, along the way of the the arc of redemptive history, how God is saving his people and setting the stage for Jesus to come in the New Testament. So, you know, we're not as familiar with the Old Testament, and that's why it's good for us to spend a little bit of time here and uh, and grow in our understanding of what's God's plan. So I'm gonna begin at the very end of of chapter two, and then we're gonna continue on into chapter three uh, through verse six for starters, and then I'm gonna read some, some more verses later on after that. But let's stand in honor of God's word. <clears throat> so this begins in uh, Exodus chapter two, verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Lord, would you bless the reading and hearing and receiving of your word this morning. Help us to to know you are holy Help us to know how you make your people holy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We're, as I said, going to look at some more of of chapter 3. But there's three questions that basically are coming, rising to the surface in, uh, in this passage. And it really is Moses asking the question, what is this? What's going on? What's happening? There's this bush that's burning, but it's not being consumed. And then he's asking God, you know, who are you basically? And uh, who am I going to tell people that you are when when you send me? Uh, And then lastly, he's asking himself, he's asking God, who am I, you know, that I should be this means of deliverance? Uh, I think most of us are probably familiar with the burning bush, you know, episode. Even if you're new to the church and the Bible is sort of foreign to you, you've probably heard of Moses and the burning bush. Um, but what, what's happening here is really, really significant. That's why we're including it in this series on 20 chapters of redemptive history. Uh, because what we need to know is, is not only about Moses, but we need to know about God. Uh, we know some things about Moses. He's a very, very important historical figure in the Old Testament. He was the leader of this 
exodus out of Egypt, out of slavery, uh, as God delivers his people. You know, Moses is this champion and leading everybody. He leads them through the Red Sea. We're going to look at that next week. He leads them to Sinai, and they receive the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. And, you know, we're going to look at that in two weeks. Um, Some of you may not be aware uh, that he's the author of the first five books of the Old Testament. So, we call it the Pentateuch, and Moses, you know, wrote all of those books. Uh, and some, another interesting fact is that Moses was a murderer. Did you know that? Wait a minute, that doesn't seem to sound, so it doesn't seem to fit in the, all of these accolades, right? Well, yeah, Moses thought that he was doing the right thing and the good thing by defending, you know, one of his fellow Israelites who was being attacked by an Egyptian, and he overpowered the Egyptian, ended up kind of like too much force, right? killed the Egyptian. And that's why he had to flee. Flee Egypt, went to Midian. That's how he ends up a goat herder, working for Jethro, his father-in-law, living in anonymity in the wilderness. And I, I, I want us to get that picture, not just of uh, like our conventional you know, image that we have from I don't know, art or theater or film where it's Moses uh, alone and this bush that's burning and the voice of God that you hear. Yeah, that's all there. But you know what else is there? A herd of goats. Look on the front of your bulletin. There's this beautiful ink uh, sketch by Rembrandt of Moses responding to the burning bush. Don't miss the goats. The goats are this reminder that history is full of momentous trifles. Momentous trifles, uh, Edmund Burke once said. And I think that's a great description of here's a goat herder out in the wilderness, bored to tears, yet another day of goats eating whatever they can find to eat, just trying to keep them safe. And yet, here's something absolutely unseen before. It just captures Moses' attention and his curiosity. Here's a bush that's burning, but is not consumed. What is this? What's happening? And Moses turns aside to see, and God sees that, all right, here is someone whose attention is being given to something unusual, something out of the ordinary. Fire, uh, as, as this bush is burning but not consumed, fire is, uh, you gotta pay attention when you read about fire in the, in the Bible. It's a frequent symbol of God's presence. It's a frequent image of, of the, the way that God is, is dynamic, the way that God is purifying, the way that God uh, can be illuminating and, and even comforting, but also the way that God can be dangerous if he's not respected. Fire gives us all of those kinds of images. And this account of the burning bush isn't something that's just kind of like, oh, well, that happened. It continues to be something that God's people look back on as this point where Moses is called, you know, we heard about the call of Abraham and his you know, predominant role in, in redemptive history And this is the scene where Moses gets called. And this is the scene where God reveals his name and his character to to God's people. And this is why Jesus refers to this episode. In Mark 12, and he's dealing with the Sadducees who are saying there's no resurrection. And Jesus tells them that as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses and the passage about the bush? 
how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of living, which is good for us to remember a week out from Easter. Resurrection is still relevant. We still need that power in our lives. And, And so that's what Jesus is reminding everybody of. God is speaking and he's telling Moses, that I am the eternal God, I'm the living God, and I'm coming to you, and I care about my people, and I'm going to deliver them. And you're standing on holy ground, God says. He tells Moses, don't come near. Verse 5, he says, take the sandals off your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. This is the first time that we read about something in the fallen creation being described as holy. That's really significant. Because up to this point, the only other time in the Bible that we've heard the word holy being used is in creation on the seventh day when God blessed the Sabbath day, the seventh day, and made it holy. Set it apart from the rest of the days to be this, you know, time where, we, where God would have to do something different, where we can enjoy his rest. And then sin enters the picture, and then you wonder, well, is there any more holy time? Is there any more holy space? Is there any more opportunity to have an encounter with the holy? Because we're not holy. You know, that's what sin's done to the world. And yet, here comes the holy God entering back into a fallen world. Not disregarding the world, not throwing the world in the trash can or, you know, on the compost pile to to be disregarded and thrown out and forgotten. But God re-engages and says, no, I'm going to bring holiness back onto this planet. I'm going to create holy spaces and holy times. And I'm going to, wherever God is, that space, that time becomes set apart. It becomes different than the rest of the world, the sinful world, because God's presence purifies it. And this is what Jesus would do constantly when he was on the earth, when he would talk with people and minister to people, you know, over and over and over again, there was this uh, holiness, you know, code from some of the Old Testament laws that say if somebody's sick or, you know, they've got leprosy, right? Or if there's a dead body, you don't go near that stuff. You're supposed to stay pure. You're supposed to stay holy. And those things will corrupt or pollute you ceremonially. But that didn't apply to Jesus. Jesus would go to the sick people. He would go, he, he would touch, you know, the, these corpses and they would come alive. So it worked in reverse with Jesus because anywhere that God went, that became holy space. Anything that Jesus touched as, as God incarnate became a holy thing, a holy person, set apart in, in, in relation to God. And so this is this picture of God reinvading the world not letting the world go to hell, but instead saving the world. And this is this first picture of his holiness encountering the world. So yeah, God isn't aloof. God's not, you know, forgotten us and and left us on our own. He's on a mission to make the world holy again and to make us holy again. And he's promised that one day, there's a day that's coming when everything will be made holy again. And even we get this picture of it being purified by fire where the whole world will, will be filled with the presence of God as the, as the waters you know, cover the oceans. That the holiness of God is going to be what defines us and what, what defines eternity. So as this God re-enters a fallen world and makes ho- holy ground again and provides holy space again and provides a relationship with him again, we, we read a few things about this God. 
the end of chapter 2, we read that he hears the cry of the people, that he sees their affliction, that he remembers his covenant, and that he knows. He knows. What does he know? What is this holy God who sees and hears and remembers? What does he know? He knows Israel's pain, and he knows Egypt's injustice. He knows what Israel is suffering. He's, he's not just like, oh, they're having a hard time. No, intimately, like the word no in the Bible, uh, frequently, it's, it's sometimes used for sexual intercourse. It's an intimate knowledge. It is detailed. It is thorough. And he's not just sort of like, oh, too bad for them. No, he is suffering with them. He knows they're suffering so well that he's immediately in, involved in it. It's, it's uh, the, the knowledge that God has of Israel's suffering would be like the way that, well, all, most of us, you know, when we hear about the suffering that people are experiencing in Ukraine, we go, oh, that's too bad for them. And I want to make a difference. And what do I do? I'll, you know, you know, we'll send money or something. But other than that, we don't really know what to do. But what if it was one of your relatives? What if you're like, Ukrainian in, in your genealogy? What if you've got your grandmother and grandmother, uh, father, your babushka, you know, is in, in the Ukraine? And, and she's the one that's suffering. Your grandfather's the one that's suffering. Like you care deeply about that kind of suffering. You know more intimately that kind of, of suffering. God knows Israel's pain. And he knows Egypt's injustice. And based on what God has heard and seen and how he remembers, he knows enough about the situation to pass judgment on Egypt, to hold them accountable for their evil. So this is the God who's revealing himself in this bush. And, and I'm going to pick up in verse 7. You can read along in your bulletin or in your Bibles, whatever you like. But I want, I want to give you a bigger picture of what's happening here and tell you the rest of, of this encounter. So just... Just buckle up and, and, and listen and read along here if you like. But it just says, then the Lord said, I have surely seen, you know, hear this re repetition of seeing and hearing and knowing. I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. And I know their sufferings and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a land, a good and broad land a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites and Hittites and Amorites and Perizzites and Hivites and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel out of Egypt. But Moses said, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. And he said, but I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. 
And God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So there's a lot going on here. Let me try to boil it down. We get the revelation of God's covenant name. You get Moses going, all right, what is this? This bush is burning but not being consumed. And then basically his question is, who are you? Who do I tell the people has sent me? Who, you know, and, and God gives Moses his covenantal name, Yahweh. Uh, there's a slide that just kind of gives you a little bit of summary here real quick. A lot of times the generic name for God is El or Elohim. And then God reveals his name. And, and, and that's where you see the word Lord in all caps in your Bible is Yahweh being translated into English. So that's Lord in all caps. Lord in, in lowercase letters is Adonai. And then because God's name is held in such high esteem and such high regard, people wouldn't pronounce the name Yahweh. And so they took the consonants of Yahweh and the vowels of Adonai kind of mash them together. And that's, that's where you get the word Jehovah, the name Jehovah, if you've ever heard that name for God. Uh, it's, it's, it was invented out of respect to try to keep God's name holy, to hallow his name, right? Not misuse it. Um, the name Yahweh, thanks for the slide, Hannah. Uh, the name Yahweh comes from a, a Hebrew word for to, root word for to be, right? I am that I am, or I shall be, you know, right? So God's covenantal name comes from basically his essence, his being. And, you know, kind of interestingly, some of you are curious about my name. I've shared my, the story of my name, like Essen. If you haven't met me yet or if you're new, I'm going to tell you my, the story of my name. I have a weird name. I have to repeat my name. Every time I'm introduced to somebody, I say, hey, my name is Essen. They go, what was that? Yeah, Essen. And then I just sort of go into my little icebreaker spiel. It's great. I get to know people this way. And I tell them that, well, so my, my, my dad uh, was uh, a professor, art professor. He came up with this sort of this clever name uh, based on the Latin word essay, which is the verb for to be. It's where we get the words essence and essential. So my name comes from a Latin word for to be. Yahweh comes from the Hebrew word for to be. And I was sort of a little reluctant to share this story about my name and God's name, thinking like, isn't that kind of inappropriate? Well, sounds a little wrong, right? Well, and, and, you know, there's even this commandment against not misusing the Lord's name. Exodus 20, the fourth commandment, don't, or the third commandment, don't take the Lord's name, uh, the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Well, let me assure you, I'm not taking the Lord's name in vain. Our names are incredibly powerful reminders of the holiness of God's name. When somebody remembers your name, like you just introduced to them and they come back, you know, the day later or whatever, hey, John, hey, Mary, like, oh, yeah, I remember my name. When somebody remembers my name, I'm really impressed because they've never heard it before. But how do you feel when somebody remembers your name? You feel honored, remembered, you feel esteemed, you feel respected, you know, you feel important, you feel significant. How do you feel when somebody disdains your name? 
How do you feel when somebody says your name and they're irritated and they're annoyed and they're mad and they're, they're fed up? You feel small or you feel angry, you feel defensive. Don't use my name that way. Don't call me that, don't, don't tease me. You know, when I was in sixth grade, I changed my name from Essen to Jeff. I did. Just J-E-F-F, not G-E-O-F-F, not anything weird, just J-E-F-F, because I was so tired of being picked on, because people were teasing me because of my name. Names are powerful. Names get to the, the, the core of who you are. It's an identity. And God's name is holy. And God's name means I am. And God is acting and he's coming into the world saying, I want you to know who I am. And I want you to know the real you know, God, not the fake gods of Egypt and the other Assyrian and Babylonian deities. I want you to know the creator of heaven and earth. I want you to know your savior and redeemer. Which is why it's so beautiful, right? That when, when Jesus comes along in Matthew chapter one and the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph, just like the angel of the Lord is appearing to Moses and Joseph's going, what do I do? Mary's pregnant and the angel of the Lord says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit and she will bear you a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus means Yahweh saves. That is who he is. That is who I am. And behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name, you finish it, Emmanuel, God with us. These are direct echoes from Exodus chapter 3. Everyone in this world comes into this world crying, crying out. And the rest of our lives are spent wondering, does anyone hear? And is anyone willing to help? Those of you blessed with good families and healthy friendships, you get the answer to that question, yeah. People hear my cry, people wanna help, and they are a picture. Those healthy families and healthy friendships are a picture of the God who hears our cry and who helps us. The gospel proves that God has promised to help us and then yet keeps his promise. And, and in verse 15 in our passage here, God says, this is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations, right? That God's come to us and he saves us and he blesses us. So when, when we are called to remember his name, I want to ask us, what are the occasions in which we are called to remember his name? Which is a dumb question because the answer is pretty self-evident. Well, all occasions, we're always supposed to remember his name. We're never supposed to forget his name. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. In every instance, you know, think about God's glory. Think about who he is and his holiness and how everything's a gift from him. And I love Elizabeth Barrett Browning's poem. She says that earth's crammed with heaven. Like every instance is an opportunity to remember God's glory and holiness. Earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God. But only he who sees 
takes off his shoes. And the rest, they sit around it and pluck blackberries. Do you see? Do you see the holiness of God? Do you see the glory of God in all things? Do you remember God in all things? And especially, do you remember God in your suffering? Do you remember that God remembers you? In Psalm 34, we read that when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. God says he wants his name to be remembered throughout all generations. That those of us who have you know, been around the block a few times, and we've got some years under our belt, the, those who are coming after us are watching how we live as disciples. They're watching, do we remember on all occasions, but especially do we remember that God remembers in our suffering? And I saw a, a, a beautiful and powerful demonstration of this last night when we gathered outside the CVS and Ludewitt Boulevard to honor that place, that space, and that time when Ann Seton was taken from us last year, 366 days ago. And Scott gathered us um, with his boys, with Philip and Sam and Dan and a bunch of their friends from college and graduate school. Like it was about a dozen of us standing in a circle and it was just, it was me and Scott and then Tom, uh, Scott's father-in-law came. We were the only kind of grown-ups. And the rest of these were young adults and college students, as I said. And Scott's just leading us all in remembering Anne. And just telling, telling us about that night, telling us about what happened, and creating freedom and creating space for people to remember and just to, to reckon with, you know, yeah, we lost a lot. To, to be able to grieve, to be able to lament, but also to be able to give thanks for her and to make that space that was so tragic a holy space. God was present. We're in his presence and we're praying and he's with us. And all of those students are watching a man remember that God remembers. When people look at our lives and our suffering, are they seeing men and women who remember that God remembers? Or do they see us forget They're probably seeing a mix, right? There's grace for our forgetting. That's the thing we have to remember. (laughs) There's grace for our forgetting. That God comes to us and blesses us. That that when we ask like Moses, who am I? Who am I to, to be in your presence? Who am I to be even your instrument for deliverance and for grace? When when, you know, in verse 11, Moses says to God, who am I that I should go? We need to remember that we're, we're the recipients of God's grace. That he blesses us even though we forget. Yeah, he calls us to remember, but he, he doesn't leave us when we forget. Instead, he draws us even closer. John Calvin once said that our wisdom, like the truly wise person is the, the man or the woman who... Who, who knows God and knows him or herself. 
is growing on our knowledge of God and knowing who we are. We are recipients of God's grace. We remember the covenant that God made with in our, our fathers and mothers. We remember the covenant that God made with Abraham. We looked at a couple of weeks ago before Easter, you know, in chapter 12, that God said, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. You will be a blessing. And you're going to be a holy nation. You're going to be a holy people. You're going to be in relationship with God. How does that work? How does that happen? We're so forgetful. We're so unholy. You know, that uh, bush that Moses saw, it, it, it burned with the, the fire of God's holiness, but wasn't consumed. There's another bush, we'll call it a tree. Thousands of years later, it burned with God's holiness. But what was on that tree was consumed. As Jesus hung on the cross, we're told that he who had no sin became a sin offering so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God judged him and condemned him and consumed him because he was a sin offering for us. And and in that in, in the justification and the atonement that God provided on the cross, our sin is burned away. The dross is skimmed off. We are forgiven. We are, our shame is removed. Our guilt is removed. And those who are united to Jesus are made clean and acceptable and beautiful and pure and holy in his presence. That's what makes us able to stand before him and not hide our face like Moses, but to have the light of his face shining on us, to accept us and to love us because he loved us with a holy love, not the kind of impure and imperfect love that we have where we get scornful and we get defensive and we, we keep score and we cast away and we do all that, we play all those games. God doesn't. I don't know what you've done. I don't know what you've forgotten. But it's like that compared to the glory and the majesty and the holiness of God's love for you. It's shown on the cross. God called Moses by name. He said, Moses, Moses. And Moses says, here I am. And he continues to call his saints by name. He did it in Genesis. He said, Abraham. And Abraham said, here I am. And he said, Jacob, he, Jacob said, here I am. And he calls you my name. And what, what are you going to say? Will you respond the way Moses and Abraham and Jacob and all of our fathers and all of our mothers in the faith who have gone before us, will you join their chorus and say, here I am. Sanctify me, make me holy, set me apart and respond. Say yes to the grace that God offers us through Jesus who was that burning sacrifice on the cross. And then as we receive his grace, we become his agents of it. And we pass that holiness along. We pass that, that, that uh, character of God that sees and hears and remembers and knows. And then we help our neighbors and the nations to know that that's the living God. That's the God in heaven. And I want to know that God, the God who 
who hears the groaning of the people around us? Where you're attuned to your neighbor, where you're you care, where you're, you're compassionate, where you're curious, and you're going, what are you bearing? What are your burdens? Like, like there are people sitting right next to you right now. Maybe they're your spouse. Maybe they're your kids. Maybe they're your friends. Maybe they're a couple of seats away from you. I don't know. Do you know what keeps the people next to you up at night? Do you know they're groaning? Do you know their burden? If not, why not? And if so, how can you be a part of God's means of lightening that load? And and then there's other circles that kind of emanate out, right? Like, do you see the affliction of our neighbors? God, God sees everything. He knows everything. Do you see what the Bible consistently points out, this group of people that some theologians have nicknamed the quartet of the vulnerable, where God constantly is putting four groups of people in our faces. Don't forget, don't forget, don't forget the, the, the widow, the orphan, the poor, and the alien. Don't forget, do you see their suffering? And I know we get overwhelmed and I know the problems are so big and we don't really know what to do and we, we don't have the bandwidth for that and we just kind of kind of are, are tempted to go, I'm gonna, I, I can't handle it, I gotta turn away. Don't turn away. Um, when you go to the picnic today and you meet people from that side of the tracks, from the Winona School District. Just be curious. Just get to know them and say, hey, tell me what's going on. And try to, try to show people what God has done for us. He sees our affliction. He remembers his covenant. He keeps his promises. And that's something that we have to reflect to our, our community. Do we keep our promises? Are we... Are we faithful to our marriage vows? Are we faithful to our membership vows? Are we trustworthy as men and women and children? Can people rely on us? Do people see that image of God in us? Lastly, do we know? Are we learning? Are we trying to know the dynamics of suffering in our community, in our city, in our world? Do we know? Are we trying to know? Are we trying to learn how to stop these cycles of despair? Are we going to be agents of God's mercy? Not just recipients, but active in being a part of the, the, the solution. God hears your groaning. God remembers his covenant with you, and God sees his people, and he knows you. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks that we call upon a God who has revealed himself to us in holiness, that you want us to honor your name and to keep it holy, and we pray that we would do that through Jesus, who takes our sins away, who calls us to follow him, and we want to say to you, here we are, here I am, and Lord, would you use us not uh, simply as as a sponge to receive your grace, but to be poured out and squeezed out so that others can know that grace too. And Lord, help us to see, help us to hear, help us to remember, help us to know, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.